0: Hey, thanks so much for listening to Dissident Orthodoxy. We've got a great conversation on the way. A couple of things. If you like the show, you can support us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating and review. You can support us by telling a friend, sharing on social media, or you can support us for as little as a buck a month on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Dissident Orthodoxy. I'm Casey Hobbs. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Audrey Claire Farley. She's the author of Unfit Eras. We've talked to her before. That was her older book. She's got a forthcoming book in June called Girls and Their Monsters, the Janian Quadruplets in the Making of Madness in America. Um, just a quick note up top. Our conversation is going to cover... Some dark talk- topics, um, including um, sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse. So just be warned up top um, that that's going to be part of what we're talking about. Um, so, Audrey, I'm so happy to talk to you a second time. Thanks for thanks for making the time.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. OK, so tell us the story. This is it's a wild story. Um which uh, we were saying right before we started recording, I'm starting to anticipate when um I see your name on a byline or uh, certainly with your books. So tell us about the story and how how it came to be a book. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so I first learned about the janine quadruplets, and that's a pseudonym. Their real name was Morlock from Bob Colker's book, Hidden Valley Road which was an Oprah pick and a bestseller a few years ago, and explored another family in which a lot of the children had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And so I was introduced to their story, and it is a story about four sisters, identical quadruplets who were all diagnosed with schizophrenia by their 20s and then studied at the National Institute of Mental Health in the 1950s, which was then newly formed. And it was presented as being this case of nature versus nurture, because obviously the fact of four identical quads being having the same mental illness would suggest a genetic etiology. But the researchers came to find out they had really lived in a house of horrors their dad was very abusive. He was gratuitously obsessed with sex and their virginity. He would kind of grope them, claiming to be gauging how they'd react on dates when older. And it very quickly became clear to me that, um, you know, that this story was about much more than nature and nurture and so uh i i just kind of you know learned as much as i could about the case reached out to the surviving quadruplet i've really become friends with her and mm. and um and and so there's a lot here which we'll get into
0: yeah right right um yeah um the nature versus nurture thing obviously like you said the the book reveals and the story reveals it's um a lot, there's a lot more to it than that. But I want. I wonder if you can talk about how that was originally perceived a little bit more, you kind of touched on it. Um, but with kind of that, with that conversation going full tilt, I think at that time, it seems. Um, and then, yeah, that the perception of it having to be one or the other, um, I was, that was a really interesting point um, up top at the beginning of your book. So, yeah, I wonder if you want to flesh that out kind of historically about that conversation that was going on then. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So over the last hundred or so years of the Psy disciplines, meaning psychiatry and psychology, there's often a pendulum swing from, you know, nature to nurture. And in the 1950s, the focus was really on nurture because of, um, the height of psychoanalysis at that time. So there was a theory that mothers drove their children crazy. It was called the schizophrenogenic mother theory. And it was coined by an analyst named Frieda from Reichman. And to be fair to her, she didn't believe that mothers were singularly responsible for mental illness. And she was really compassionate And had faith in schizophrenics in a way that not even Freud did. He thought that that their case was hopeless, that they couldn't be reached in psychoanalysis because they were incapable of transference, which was that little magical act in psychoanalysis where you project onto the analyst and then in so doing, render your fears and all your desires visible. So she had a lot of compassion. But anyway, this idea just totally takes off. And there is this view that mothers uh, drive their children crazy, usually with um, mixed signals. So for instance, if a mother says she loves you, but when you go to hug her, she flinches, then that's a mixed single signal and the child will become very confused. And then that leads them to be paranoid because they're like, well, do you really love me? And that paranoia then just kind of snowballs into something resembling schizophrenia. And so when the the quadruplets were studied, that theory was at its height, but there were also people that were studying the genetics of of mental illness, specifically through twins, um, because twins had higher concordance rates, which means both twins diagnosed. So, you know, it, again, it, the, the fact that so many of the, all four of the sisters had this suggested at least to the geneticists that it was genetic, but then there's the other side of, well, they also shared their environment, right? Twins have the same milieu that they're growing mm-hmm. up in. And so there were these competing theories, um, which a lot of the researchers who studied them at NIH were kind of testing out on them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it- it really kind of served this narrative piece and I think a commentary on how this conversation has had that it can it could very easily um be construed as um serving either <laughs> serving either point um when you look at that and and I, I think that's part of why your work is so interesting is because it gets, it just complicates everything um, and and makes it about more than just an easy answer. So uh, on that point of mothers being responsible for mental illness, um, Sadie is the mother um, of, of the four. And when, when there's a, when they start having these conversations and these diagnoses, she is the one they're suspicious about her immediately. And, and Carl, the, the father, um, basically just gets a free pass for for a long time. So talk about how that played out in their particular story.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would say that Carl, the father, gets a pass in a few different ways. Um, First of all, he is the one who is primarily tormenting them. As I mentioned, he would feel the girls up. He claimed to be doing this to gauge how they'd react on dates. He was just hyper fixated on their virginity. Um, And, you know, when I first learned about him, I was really reminded of more contemporary purity culture, which, you know, we can talk about. And I mentioned Mm -hmm. later in the book because it is such a gratuitous obsession with sex. One thing that I have learned studying purity culture is that that fixation with sex, with virginity and inset and innocence often correlates with racism. And indeed, Carl uh, was very racist. He was actually a Nazi in the sense that he really supported Hitler and wanted, after the war was over, Hitler to come to the United States and purge the US of its own defective people. So it really became clear to me that his focus on his daughter's virginity was driven a lot by his fears of race mixing. Um, The idea um, that they were going to breed or become intimate with people of another color or race. And these fears were really dominated that time. You know, the Jim Crow era made people think pornographically because racism was being expressed as a, um, as a sexual anxiety. Right. And if you think of this is very visible in the South, but also in a state like Michigan where they lived um, the fear was that this black man or this other um in carl's case often jewish others were you know just out to get white women right that's that's what mm-hmm. they're they just want to sleep with the white woman and so she needs to be protected um you know by the white man with violence with laws by keeping them out of the classroom and so the racism of that period really made a lot of people think Pornographically, they are writing sex onto every black-white encounter, and that's what Carl did, right? He's just so focused on his daughter's sexuality. I believe, in large part, um, because his racism.
0: Yeah, um, I think that's really a really fascinating connection that you make, and uh, you make other places in your writing. You have this juxtaposition of a, a very familiar story and um, a very familiar uh, black family, um, the Littles, in uh, <laughs> suspiciously uh, familiar um, in Lansing, Michigan. So, talk about um, about kind of the intersection of the Little family um, and and what um, what this reveals about that point.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm realizing now I didn't fully answer your last question. Can I circle back to that? Oh, quickly? absolutely, do yeah, sure. Okay, so you had asked about Carl getting a pass. Yeah. So the I kind of set off in a different direction. <laughs> but when they get to NIH, um, the the researchers tend to place all the blame on Sadie, the mother, as you say. So Carl gets a pass in that sense, but he also gets a pass in the sense that his um, his bigotries are not really considered as as relevant, right? Um, They think that it's mostly Sadie's fault, but it could also be that the sisters had inherited a genetic predisposition to mental illness, and that might have come from Carl's side of the family. But the point is, in no way do they see his bigotry as something worth mentioning, either in their analysis of him, because he underwent you know, a psychiatric evaluation or the quadruplets. So the Littles are a family in uh, Lansing, Michigan, who struck me as being the foils to the Morlocks in a lot of ways. So when the, the quadruplets were born, they were such a media sensation and the city really rallied together to put them in a house. They gave them a free home for a year after which they purchased it. Free milk, free clothing, you, know, you name it, whatever they needed, their needs were met by the community. And the little family by contrast was a family, black family, uh, the patriarch was a Baptist preacher who had been tormented by um, a racial terrorist group there which was an offshoot of the Ku Klux Klan. And when he died under suspicious circumstances and the, the family went on welfare, this, the city was so chintzy with them. So for instance, one of the children needed glasses. That request was denied. Um, they scolded the mother for you know driving a car when she should have been riding a bus and would just storm into the home at any time, welfare workers that is, Mm -hmm. storming into the home and just really belittling her, scrutinizing every decision that she made. And when she became pregnant by a man out of wedlock, this was after her husband had died, threw her in an institution and then focused their attention on, on her children. Um, And it really just struck me how vastly different the treatment of these two families were, Um, both in the sense that the city saw the Morlocks as a family deserving of all the public charity in the world, and this other family as being totally undeserving of any public aid, but also in the sense of the state surveillance. So the Morlocks were literally being molested and abused behind closed doors and never did the state or authorities uh, violate that sphere. They just treated the home as private sanctified white parents had the right to do what they did without state intervention. By contrast with the littles uh, the state just has no respect for um, Louise little or her, right to make choices for herself or her family. And then ultimately they just take her kids away when they, they threw her in the asylum. And so as is revealed in the book, of course, that turned out to be a very famous family.
0: Yeah. Um, and I guess, I guess for folks that that don't know the littles, uh, read the book, um, and that can be revealed, um, or go back and listen to, a podcast uh, that I did with um, Biko Mandela gray last February. And that's, so there's, there's some, uh, some little, little trails there for folks that don't know. Um, Okay. So this purity culture connections and uh, you've talked about it a bit already, um, but purity connection, culture connections with race, how did that play out? You talked about how it was, it was there. Um, with Carl, and it was overlooked um, with Carl. Uh, that was, I think, probably a, a ripe time to overlook both racism and a hyper fixation on um, sexuality. But talk about how that played out in the lives of, of the four quadruplets.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that from the beginning, they were made to be icons of innocence. I really thought of them as being the Jean Bonnets of the 1930s. Mm-hmm. So even when they were six or seven years old, they would go on stage and they would sing these cute little songs about Christopher Columbus and the South. Some of these songs contained racial slurs. I know I, on at least one occasion, they opened for minstrel performers. And if folks are asking what this has to do with purity culture, It's that these uh, innocent little girls are being used to tell a story about America and the purity or innocence of America. So, you know, they would go on stage and sing these songs that really sanitized America's history of racial violence, of Jim Crow. And so, you know, from the first, they're being used to link whiteness to innocence, they're being used to link Christianity to innocence. And this is all happening at the height of Jim Crow at a time when um, the innocence of white girls is being used to justify lynching, for instance, uh, which was not, um, I mean, it was, it was you know, there, most lynchings occurred in the South, but not exclusively in the South. And the logic behind lynching is that Black men pose a threat to white innocence, white girlhood. Um, Emmett Till, of course, famously, you know, traveled from the North to the South and was lynched, you know, because he supposedly catcalled at a white woman. All it really took was one accusation. Of a girl, you know, someone looked at me in the eye without my permission. They addressed me without me addressing them. They knocked on my door. Um, and so uh, the girls really were um, representationally significant in that they were being propped up as figures of whiteness, um, of innocence, of the purity of Christianity. Uh, and interestingly, they were being sexualized, right? Like they would go on stage in these really short skirts. People would literally feel them up backstage. Um, Not only were they being abused by their father, but one of the quadruplets was being abused by a janitor at the school. So, you know, that's the nature of purity culture is that sexual abuse really is rampant. And we only talk about abuse as something that they do, that monstrous mm. others do. So, you know, um, girls are so often abused, you know, children are in general by familiar people, um, priests, Boy Scout, Girl Scout leaders, fathers, brothers. But the the nature of the panic, which today we'd call it a groomer panic, is that um, there's just this overblown demonstration of caring about abuse, but only when it's committed by them. Uh, so there's certain kinds of violence that we as a society care about. And, and that has a lot to do with who is perp- um, perpetrating that violence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it has, it has that link to the conversation the uh, about groomers right now. So maybe we can, can touch on that real quick and get back to the story of the book. But um, yeah I mean there's obviously this moral panic um among conservatives about um about groomers and specifically and with the conversation about um about trans rights and um and so yeah this this conversation though isn't isn't a new one right it's um you you mentioned like the the girls being, uh, highly sexualized. And then even going back to, uh, to Shirley Temple, someone that might be more familiar uh, to most of us at, at that time um, that really that same thing happening. I think there is, you had a story there um, and this, I guess this is kind of becoming one of my long winded questions that's going everywhere, but uh, you, you had a uh, a quote from a journalist um, about Shirley temple that he was really just kind of saying the quiet part out loud about how um, just like about her beauty and, and just really kind of not, not kind of really creepy terms that you would not want said about, was she like seven or eight or something at the time. Yeah. Um, and he got all this pushback from everybody, you know, that I can't believe he's saying this, I got, but it was, it was, you made it really clear that how, again, like that, it wasn't just one creep that was saying that it was, he was kind of the dummy that was saying it out loud. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I guess going back to this, this conversation now, um, you know, with all of the instances of sexual abuse that happen in a religious context, um, whether that's from you know within religious families or um from from priests um it's growing up a baptist it was a lot easier to um look down your nose at at the catholics and now it's a uh, it's becoming a lot more uh, of an even even plain um with within just a larger set of religious folks um so yeah so i guess if you can find a question in there, go ahead and find a question and answer it. <laughs> and if not, um, yeah, pick up pick up what you would like from that yeah. and run with yeah. it. Yeah.
1: yeah, well, I think what I would pick up on is just how long this has been going on. The book really focuses on 20th century America, but a lot of purity culture, I would argue begins in Christian Europe and with the blood libel and the mythology about Jews. And this, I think, is most alive within Catholic circles, which is what I grew up in, a very Trad-Cath community. Yeah. In Europe, the mythology was that the Jews are out to get our children and they prey on these little white Christian children in order to suck their blood or use them to ritually reenact the crucifixion of Christ. You know, the Jews didn't kill Christ. Of course, you know, it was a Roman governor that Mm -hmm. ordered his execution, but they've long been blamed as Christ killers. And these stories about sexual abuse go way back in Christian Europe, more than a thousand years. They're preying on our kids they wanna use our kids in their satanic rituals in which they reenact you know, the crucifixion. And that kind of mythology was responsible for pogroms and a lot of racial violence against Jews in Europe. But we still see it today, um, particularly in Catholic circles when it comes to the teaching of saints I know that when I was in eighth grade and it was time to be confirmed and I had to choose a saint, it was like the boys had all these different saints to choose from. And the girls, it was like, well, which virgin martyr do you want to be? And and here's this virgin martyr who supposedly died protecting her virginity from Mm -hmm. this evil Jew. And here's a different virgin martyr who died protecting her hymen from these evil pagans. And so, you know, that mythology that we see with QAnon that we're seeing with the groomer panic that goes way, way back, um, centuries back. Mm. It's so deeply embedded in Christian.
0: The, um, (laughs) the moral panic there's there's nothing new under the sun and and meanwhile yeah it it becomes this i guess talk about the other side of that because there is the the moral panic um but then in the meantime yeah there is does it does that panic like just open the door in your opinion to um to an an abusive situation um or is it is it just yeah, um I guess this is just a human nature question and, and I guess you have a, a more informed, thoughtful opinion on this. So I'm, <laughs> I'm asking your take and opinion on this, um part of human nature. But yeah, what I guess what is it then that that transfers this from just a fear of the other to an open door um in a in in a sense of like okay now father's uncles brothers priests can move on in like what's the, the uh, is there a, do you hear a question in that
1: well i think that the panic really acts as a smoke screen yeah. in that it just blows smoke all this over here and then we're paying attention to gay teachers and trans children who are in girl bathrooms and it just totally deflects attention away from the scenes of abuse that experts have deemed to be the most common. So most abuse is mundane. Mm -hmm. It's at the hands of familiar people in familiar spaces. So your home, your church, your Boy Scout meeting, things like that. Um, So it's just, it's a a distraction tactic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um okay I'm sure we're going to re- return to that theme because it's a it's I mean a large large theme. I wanted to take a minute though and talk about a a, a multiples theme. Um so mm-hmm. I I am an identical twin um and and I have an identical twin brother. Um and so I read this with particular interest because there is Obviously, with with these quadruplets, and like you said, they were because we know about the story. When it was a a sensation, um, it was a uh, part of war propaganda. Um, that here's these um, all these self sufficient, beautiful little white girls that are so American. Not not to mention that Carl, you mentioned that they had a subsidized home for a year and then they bought the home, but they bought the home because he got a job with the city. um, That was basically just like a nothing job that he didn't actually do anything in. So it was, you can make a pretty good case that their entire life was subsidized um, as soon as the babies came. But, but then throughout school, you know, they're dressed, they're dressed the same. They're, they're um, part of it is that the, maniacal overprotection, um, of Carl for, for reasons that we've discussed already. Um, but I think part of it is just being a twin and, um, everything ends up being the same and you share everything. Um, and you see as the mental illness really takes, takes hold in their, um, I guess, teenage years, maybe preteen years for, um, for at least one of them. Um, but you see that that playing out and their their inability in a lot of ways to, to differentiate and to be their own person. Sarah, it seems like um has the the maybe the best ability at times to be able to name that, if not to really be able to, to move past, past and through that. But Yeah. Talk about that theme of differentiation and how that played out in their particular story.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. So coinciding with the schizophrenogenic mother theory was this idea that um, someone could mirror psychosis and this theory wasn't as popular, but It stood to reason to many experts that seeing your sister with whom you identify so much, seeing her become psychotic might lead you to this kind of sympathy psychosis. And so there was this theory that because they were so close, because they were not encouraged to differentiate, as you say, or form their own ego, which is a really important concept to psychology, that when one of them became mentally ill, it was just a domino effect. And indeed um, when one of them finally does have, you know, what we would call a psychotic break, it's within months that the other three are found to be uh, mentally ill. So there there just was this um, shared psychic space that they all occupied even though it's also true that they were treated differently by their parents. Mm -hmm. So Carl and Sadie clearly had their favorites and they clearly had their least favorite. And it won't surprise people to know that the one who was the most picked on by Carl, the most abused by him and others had the worst outcomes. She was institutionalized for most of her life. And Sarah, who was certainly the mother's favorite and became Carl's favorite over the years, had the best outcomes. She was able to have something approximating a normal life. And when she started to turn a corner at NIH, she really, really struggled with a kind of survivor's guilt. She felt that if she made continued to make progress, in psychoanalysis in therapy that she was going to leave them behind um and you know she's shared that with me many times over you know the months in our conversation she would say um i felt bad that they couldn't keep up with me mm.
0: um yeah um yeah so you you've mentioned um maybe i just want to stay with that for a minute because yeah, as as a twin, I mean, I, I like those development stages, whether it is as a child and you kind of look back and see like, hey, we were we were at different stages. And, you know, I, I would say that I had a completely idyllic <laughs> childhood when compared to this story. So this, that's a, there's a lot of differences, but but there is there's a sense where it's i think it's really really hard for even families that are much more functional than um, than Carl and Sadie were to to have a really hard time seeing like hey these kids are these kids are in different places emotionally developmentally even though they are they are the same <laughs> there's mm-hmm. um and and I th- and even in even and especially I think in adulthood when you start to see now I'm I'm just processing this as a twin because when you said that I had I had a response um, that mm-hmm. I feel like I need to <laughs> need to stay with um, because yeah I mean that's that that is a real thing to see like hey me and my twin or me and my three uh siblings are have taken different paths, maybe are are in different places. Um and that survival survivor's guilt, um, I can again like only imagine um with the the dramatic trauma that these girls experienced. Um I'm sure that I'm sure that never went away um for Sarah. But you connected with Sarah. Um, and, and, uh, so talk about how that, how that relationship came to be, even in the, um, in the afterward, you mentioned, um, her being involved with even knowing your family a little bit. So, um, talk about that relationship and how that came to be.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because when I first committed to writing the book, I didn't even know that she was still alive Mm -hmm. because so much time had passed. I thought for sure she must be dead. Most of the book, I assumed the same thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So long ago.
1: Yeah. Um, And so, you know, I was just like deeply Googling them. And I happened to come across a story from her from only a few years ago. And I thought, oh, my gosh, she's alive. And, uh, so it, it struck me of course, as an opportunity to reach out to her, but it was also like a big weight came on Mm. me because I was like, she's still alive. And so the sense of responsibility became heavier of needing to get the story, right. Of needing to honor her in the telling of the story. And so I was able to find her son on Facebook And I sent him a message and he wrote me back and I kind of struck up a conversation with him. And after a few weeks or so, he gave me her phone number. I think he wanted to feel me out first. Understandably. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I reached out to her and, you know, in the beginning she, she tried to uphold the pretense the facade that everything was perfect. Um, as I mentioned in the book, she wrote a memoir, which acknowledged that things weren't as good as outsiders perceived, but really didn't delve into the abuse. And over time, she just came to trust me more. And uh, I was very honest with her about the project. And I just, you know, in explaining my motivations i was able i i think to persuade her that the caricature of her was nowhere near as lovable mm-hmm. as her real self you know i just said to her this caricature the way the media portrayed you and your family was flat and fake and in some ways written with very sinister motives but you are a gift and, um, and people will love you warts and all. And, um, and I think that she was persuaded by that.
0: Yeah. I mean, and that, that comes off in the story. I mean, really with, with all four of the kids, um, that they're, that you, it, it comes across that you have a, a love for them and it, as a reader, it's, you you end up really caring about them, um, and and there's there's it's a it's a difficult read because of that because there it's not it's a, it's a really hard life that that they were put through. I wonder how she like what her take ended up being on how you represented her family and and particularly the. The dissonance, I guess, between the the caricature, as you mentioned, and and the reality. Like, what was what was her take in the end?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think that she totally grasps the argument. I mean, she is approaching ninety three, mm-hmm. and it is a complicated argument that the book constructs. But one way that I was able to help explain it to her was through the character of Shirley Temple, who we've Mm. mentioned was an icon of hers. She still has scrapbooks that she and her sisters made about Shirley Temple. They really revered her. And I said, you know, the media America was very interested in a certain story about her life that only ever showed the good and the cute Mm. and the perfect But behind closed doors, Shirley was abused, you know, and uh, it was in in pointing my finger to that story that I think she was able to see better that there can be this whole narrative about a family, which is really a lie and doesn't serve the people Mm -hmm. who are at the center of that story. Um, So, you know, I, I still, you know, think about um, how much she grasps that, but I think that, you know, she, she does grasp a little bit of it. Um,
0: yeah. And I'm sure it means, means something to hear her own internal process reflected back a little bit. I wonder, I guess still on that, um, with her son, you mentioned Mm
1: -hmm.
0: interacting with her son. So is that, um, yeah. Like I, I guess i yeah. now I'm just prodding, but, uh, is it, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. So I'll also add that it was Sarah's choice to use their real names right? Okay. in the book. And, um, because I would have been happy to use the pseudonyms. Sure. I don't feel that it totally hinges on their real names. Um, but her son had said the scientists, you know, he he very clearly felt that the scientists had exploited their story and mm. gained fame because of it. And he said the least they could have done is brought attention to the real quadruplets. Mm. And she kind of was influenced by him saying that sure. and decided that they were that I should use their real names. And so I did. Um, but yeah, the sun is uh I I consider sarah and her son david to be the light at the end of the tunnel Mm. in the book because it really is uh the happy ending to the story and he was a veteran and now works at a veterans hospital and i've been out to michigan several times i've stayed at his house while she stays there as well and um he's really welcomed me Mm. into his life and introduced me to her and so as for her she and i talk all the time now she Mm. calls me (laughs) she with you know the the wildest questions like just this week she called and she's like honey do you bite your nails (laughs) you know (laughs) um she's very um up to date on what's going on with my family Mm. and in fact. My daughter, who is 13, just had her first school dance. Mm. And there's a significant part in the book involving a school dance. People have to read it. But one of the quadruplets, her sister Wilma, had always been the beautician in the family. And she had this beauty case. And she would do all the girls' hair and put it in curlers and all their makeup. And so Sarah gave me the beauty case. Oh wow. Uh, yeah. And so um you know my daughter and her friends I got a really great picture of them like all sitting around the beauty case which had stuff in it from decades ago oh, little bobbins from way back when. Uh so my family has really come to love her and you know she's kind of like a grandmother to me now.
0: Oh that's so sweet. That is a that's a really happy ending. Um yeah and I, I mean I want to sort of end there with maybe one more one more question in that um because I mean this I I question myself reading this I'm like okay why are you why are you why are you reading this and I was like okay first of all I've I've talked to Audrey before and I I really like her so I want to talk to her again um and the the narrative is strong um I don't know if it makes a ton of sense for for my podcast necessarily as it is but he, but I'm 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 interested and and then yeah there's there the narrative is so dark too like the the story is really troubling um and like I said the the silver lining and the the happy ending um is is it is a story about human nature and and about what um what people can overcome more than more than I would say anything else um and it's hard to get there, but I guess so so my question and all of that is yeah what to you like what does this story reveal about human nature like the good and the bad um mm-hmm. like what do you what do you walk away with
1: mm-hmm <sighs> Well, I was deeply moved by Sarah's faith Mm -hmm. and her son's faith because she particularly had endured what a lot of people today would call religious trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing we haven't talked about is the way that the father would um, try to threaten them with hell and damnation if they didn't, um, Mm -hmm been to his every whim. So it wasn't just the sexual abuse or the hyper controlling nature, but the way that he used faith to, uh, to control them. And I, I was really moved that even after that, Sarah still had faith. And if you asked her, you know, she would be the first to tell you that, um, that it was her faith that got her through you know all of those dark years and and David says something similar and so it was really important to me even though I'm not a particularly religious person to portray Christianity both as something uh, that can be exceptionally violent not just at the individual level but you know we talked about the way that Uh, Christianity has uh, organized around Jews or Black Americans in the United States, Um, but also as something that, um, that redeems people and that enlivens them and gives them reason for hope, even under the worst of circumstances. And so I really hope that as dark as the book is that it lets light in Mm -hmm. Um, and one of my blurbers this isn't on the copy of the book that you have but said something to the effect of this is a story about the ways we hurt each other and also lift each other up Mm -hmm. and I was really really blessed by those words um, because I wanted the book to be that you know this is a story about sisters who in many cases, uh, have a lot of bitterness and rivalry towards each other. They're constantly sizing each up, each other up against the other, but when push comes to shove, they will bear one another's burdens. Mm. Um, and, and so I, I really, for me, the redeeming aspect of the book is the love that they have for each other. And then Sarah and her surviving son David have for each other. Yeah.
0: That's that is beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks, thanks for engaging this material and in, in the unique and hopeful way that you do. Um I'm excited for folks to read this in, in June. Um so it's from Grand Central Publishing. Again, the title is Girls and Their Monsters, the Genian quadruplets and the making of madness in america um audrey thank you so much again for the time and i really uh appreciate it and look forward to to talking again at some future time
1: thank you really appreciated this
0: And that's the show. Thank you so much for listening to Dissident Orthodoxy. We have some great content for you coming up soon. In the meantime, go on to Apple Podcasts, give us a rating and review, tell a friend, support us for as little as a buck a month on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon.